Lord God, we acknowledge you to be the one who wields righteousness and justice, and how little of that we see on our TV screens. So as we come before you with the tragedies and crises of the world on our hearts, as well as with our own crises and tragedies, we pray that you would guide us to find your righteousness in the middle of the chaos that surrounds us. Amen. Do please sit. Well, you may have been away, and so it is perhaps worth saying that uh, we are in coming towards the end of a series on 1 Kings, and this is the story of the eventual fall of Ahab, the uh, spiritually bad but politically brilliant king of the northern kingdom, Israel. And it occupies the last three chapters of our book. And the modern resonances I find extraordinary, even in verse 1, where Ben-Hadad, who's the king of Aram, for which we read Syria, he's sometimes called the king of Damascus, he, um, he comes to northern Israel with 32 kings. Now, there is not space between Damascus and northern Israel for there to be 32 kingdoms. Uh, it's uh, the distance, I've, I've gone through this before, but if you go from um, Jerusalem to Galilee, then if you go on the same distance again, you pretty much hit Damascus. It really is very close. So there just isn't space for 32 kingdoms. So when it says kings, it's using the right word, but these are tribal warlords only. They're not kings with thrones and kingdoms in the kind of way that we would established. They were people, they were warlords who would have uh, summoned the men of their tribe uh, into the service of the king of Syria to whom they owed some kind of allegiance and they would have ridden with him. And towards the end of our story, as it was read today, Ben-Hadad is advised in Damascus, um, tell you what, these 32 are fighting as a rabble what you need to do is to replace them with uh, officers of your own army and bring the whole thing into some kind of order. Why did Nuri al-Maliki resign this week? Because he failed in his attempt to bring order to Iraq and relieve by what had been going on was far too much tribal, factional fighting. The resonances are extraordinary. When you look through the story of the Middle East from the Old Testament forward, we've already seen Ahab leading the idolatry of Israel. Now, this passage doesn't deal with that very much. And it actually takes a step away from the Elijah story to speak of a random unnamed prophet. And so I want to do something slightly different. Someone in the week took me to task slightly. For leaving a question hanging a couple of weeks ago, I complained then that we no longer seem to ask enough the questions of the kind, where is God in Gaza or Iraq or Syria? And there's an issue at the heart of today's chapter that demands the same kind of attention. We don't ask that question, let alone answer it. The events of this chapter show the bad Ahab not being defeated, as we might expect, but actually achieving success. Twice. 
The unnamed prophet says in verse 13, You see this vast army, I will give it into your hands today, and then you will know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. Ahab does win the battle, and it's all repeated again the next year. When again the man of God says, this time in verse 28, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am Yahweh the Lord. Which Ahab doesn't. That is, each time he wins, he forgets to acknowledge God. At the end of the reading that we had, Ahab acts astutely, politically, but it remains in defiance of God's instructions for how warfare is to work. And actually, for the rest of the chapter, he attracts further judgment and is rebuked and is told that you're going down. Of course, it could have gone another way in principle. If he had lost, maybe he might have said, that's because I've been a bad king. I am being judged and I repent I turn to Yahweh. If he uh, had reacted when he won, he might have said, that is because I've seen mercy from a good God, I recognize his right to judge, and I repent, I turn to Yahweh. He does neither of those things. The role of the prophet, whoever he was, is to make clear that the outcome as it actually happens is the work of a God who is his God and is in charge. When Ahab neglects to follow the outcome, the victory, with obedience, he just deepens his rebellion. Well, that's not difficult to observe within the story of the Bible. It's actually the kind of thing we expect in the Bible. But it can't be enough to say that that observation works for a kind of storybook Bible, but that a completely different set of issues is going on today. If that's what we believe, then our God is locked up in the storybooks. Uh, Cartoons of Samuel are all we will ever look at. And he becomes the kind of privatized God of feelings that would have made no sense to Elijah with his devotion to a God who does all things. You could actually, if you wanted to go back, you could pay attention to all the hymns we've sung in our service today. I think, uh, I didn't check them ahead of time, but I think they're all based on Psalms. And all of them express a confidence that God is in charge. But what does that look like in Gaza? Never mind Gaza, what about your life? So who's in charge? Who's in charge on Mount Sinjar in Iraq with its Christians and Yazidis? And I want to spend some time today stepping back from the Ahab story, not least because we've got two more episodes of it still to come, and ask the general question, who's in charge today when bad things happen? And if that's not a question that bothers you much, then let me express it, the problem in a particular way and suggest that it should bother us. It looks like there's a spectrum of answers to the question who's in charge, between God's in charge and humanity's in charge. And if we say God's in charge, then we have verses 13 and 28 on our side. I will give the army into your hand today. But then the terrible suffering of the battle is also God's fault. In the second battle, there are 100,000 casualties in the battle itself and 27,000 
when the uh, walls of the city of Afek uh, collapse, probably because everyone had fled to it and there was terrible pressure and uh, th- they just crumbled. God, it's God's fault, those 127,000, and God is a monster. If we say, on the other hand, no humanity is in charge, then we have no meaning we can give to those verses in 13 and 28, because what, what is the prophet saying? He's just lying. And we cannot blame Ahab for doing whatever he wants. God, if he even exists, is a wimp. I reckon that's a problem. Monster or wimp. Move history along and come to Gaza. If God is in charge, then he is responsible for the terrible suffering that has caused the disaster emergency that calls for our help in newspapers and other media. If he's in charge. But if humanity is in charge, then there is nothing and no one standing behind history. It means there's no one holding you accountable for your actions. And you may as well pass through this life looking supremely to your own personal interests, trampling on every person who gets in your way. Neither God's in charge, humanity is in charge, neither option seems attractive. And actually, of course, neither option seems really true. Neither option corresponds to what we sense to be true. That's why it's equally unsatisfactory when some atheists argue supposing there to be no God, that all our actions are determined by factors utterly aside from our own human being and willing. Why do Israelis and Gazan Palestinians pound each other? Well, because they each want to win in order to survive in the survival of the fittest, they say. And then you can finesse that argument by saying, because each group wants its genes to survive, so they will engage in apparently altruistic behaviour being nice sometimes, but it isn't really. It's just survival of the fittest at the microscopic level. It's called determinism, and it's really just God in charge, but without God. Something makes us do the things we do, it says. It's a different answer, but it's not really a different kind of answer. It suffers from the same problem. It's somehow false to what we know, more deeply than any science can tell us. We just know that we are responsible for action. Indeed, it's a very serious step when we take away responsibility for action from an individual. When a bad thing happens and a court says, you weren't responsible, They do so only by saying your mind was impaired, you acted in ways that don't map onto what we understand of responsibility. So the solution is to take away your responsibility, your freedom to act, either to put you in a secure hospital or to make you secure through medication. Anyone trying the defense in court that it wasn't me, Your Honor, it was my genes what made me do it, would not get very far. Whether it's God or our genes on the one hand, or our solo responsibility as humans, no answer on the spectrum, it's fixed for you, all the way over to you have complete freedom, seems enough of an answer. It seems even the answers aren't answers. 
The problem, in fact, leads us on to something else, leaving that spectrum behind. We must be after a different kind of answer. And I wonder if you'll trust me if I claim that at this point the Bible's job is not to present us with the answer, but rather to keep presenting us with the issues that an answer must live with. Again and again, the Bible's answer is verses 13 and 14. Yahweh is in charge. I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this, asked Ahab. And the prophet replied, this is what the Lord says, the young officers of the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. And the prophet answered, you will. There was actually a ripple of laughter went through the congregation. I heard when that reading came through. The Lord is going to do this. Yeah, but who's actually going to do it? You will. Yahweh is in charge, but you will do it. The Bible again and again presents us with that as the basic thing you can't go behind. Again and again, the Bible affirms that action is in the hand of two actors, two agents, God and humanity, in some relationship. So our task, when we are faced, as we may be at our office desk or in our studies or wherever else, by this charge, who is in charge in Gaza? Our task is not to find an answer that the Bible hasn't given yet. It is not to, for me to take you into some little-known text of Leviticus and pull a rabbit out of the hat and say, ta-da, you didn't know about that bit, did you? But rather to find a way of thinking about what the Bible says that we can live with and is satisfying to us morally and spiritually, and it turns out that it's a task of imagination. What sort of thing might it be that enables us to say God and humanity together? And for a way to imagine that, I turn to my holiday. Fathers, some of you have already been where I was this summer. For some of you, it lies ahead. It is the daddy-daughter dance at your daughter's wedding. I was very happy driving Isabel to church. I was perfectly happy walking her up the aisle. I had nothing but happiness through most of the day. The only thing that made me nervous was the prospect of a dance. Just the two of us to a swing band when I don't know swing. It was easy in the old days. In the old days, Isabel would stand on my toes and I would waltz her across the kitchen. One, two, three, one, two, three. Going backwards or sideways if we were in danger of hitting the fridge. And in those days, I took all responsibility because she was on my toes. But she grew up. Would she get it on her wedding day that it was my job to lead? (laughs) Never mind her, would I get it? that it was my job to lead. Well, we, su- we survived. But I want to pay attention to the responses needed in that dance. We know from what we believe that we value a God 
to whom we've sung today, who makes himself known to us in Jesus as 100% God and 100% human. So is there a way of having human responsibility joined with God's being in charge? Look at this story today, and indeed any story, and we discover humans who both act and are acted upon. They act, circumstances respond, and in response they act again. Just like uh, Samuel in that clip, there's a call, an event, and then a response. Indeed, the power of this story today lies in the question, how will Ahab act when it matters? He will be presented with a circumstance, a victory that lies outside his capacity, tiny as his army is. It is a call to him. How will he respond? How will he act? What if the relationship between us and God, Ahab and God, is a constant dance of responsibility? What if a dance is a reasonable way of imagining responsibility? With now nobody standing on each other's toes, but each taking responsibility for their role. At each moment, we can decide whether to respond as those who are led or to insist on leading. To respond as led is fully human and fully proper. It fits with that sense we have that we are responsible. Everything that's important to say is in the word. We are making a response. Something happens, it is open to us, genuinely open to go this way or that. Yet what we offer is then taken up and into the wider dance, and we are offered choices again. A rocket lands in Jerusalem. The Israelis have a real choice, fully theirs, fully responsible, because they have the question of responding. They could fire or decline to fire. They fire. Hamas then has a real, fully responsible human choice. Yet each choice is also a choice whether or not to listen to a God who says, thou shalt not kill. A God who has led in the dance, and we can affirm is still leading. Scale it up, beyond the dance, beyond Gaza and Iraq and Syria, and crises in Central America, Africa, and the Far East, and Europe, is it possible that there is a God who could be in charge in that kind of way? Well, we know what Ahab and Ben-Hadad and even the man of God in the story did not know. We know God as he is made known to us in Christ. The issue of what kind of agent is God in the dance, is made known to us in the dance that takes Jesus to the cross for our sin and the dance he dances on his tombstone in his rising again. If God is as he is known in Jesus, and we may say only if God is as he is known in Jesus, then we can trust the God who might otherwise seem arbitrarily in charge 
the God who gives us fully human responsibility and then holds us to account in Jesus for the exercise throughout our lives of that very responsibility. When we are faced, as I suspect too rarely we are faced, because people just think God is irrelevant, with the question, where is God in Gaza or on Mount Sinjar? When we are faced with the question, where is God in my cancer? Where is God in this terminal disease or terrible disaster that has happened to me? Whatever the answer we give, we cannot say that the story is known in bits, that God is responsible for this bit of it and humans responsible for this bit of it. We have to have an answer that's for the whole of it. If they say, where is God in Gaza? It's our job to point out that that question is no different from the question, where was God when you got angry last week? The questions are asked because they're conveniently far away. And our task is to take the far away questions and turn them and say, yes, but it's about you. Because you could be fighting in Gaza. Because such is the anger and rage in your own heart as it is in mine. God tells us that he actually carries responsibility for the whole of history. He will wrap it up. And he holds us equally accountable for the whole of history. He will be judge of our responses through history. In the middle of it all, we look at our Gazas and our cancers, and we do what we can. And in the middle of it, we proclaim God not as he is fuzzily known in the circumstances of Gaza or of cancer, but in the words of a man uh, of God who came nine centuries later than the one in this story. We respond in terms of the man of God who is Jesus Christ. And that, or if we say less than that, we are saying less than the Bible demands of us in our time. So let us not be put to flight or scared when the questions come, because the questions are always about your heart and mine, about the heart of Ahab and the heart that goes through those fighting in Gaza. It's the same heart, and only Jesus has the answer to it. Let's pray. Lord, I know if, you, uh, if one deals with these great big questions, the danger is that we leave it saying, oh, I think I heard a sermon about that, and about halfway through there was one thing that was useful. And the truth is we, we can try after the event to remember what it is we wish we had said. But let us hold on to this, that whether it's Ahab or Ben-Hadad or Nuri al-Malaki or uh, those involved in Gaza, the same line that runs through the human heart runs through ours. And as Jesus is the answer to the line in our heart, 
for the responsibility we take for our sin, such that he takes the judgment for it, as well as being the judge of all things at the end of time. Give us a fresh confidence that the only answer to that line of human sinfulness is in the place where two lines meet at the cross, where Jesus Christ was crucified for all our sin. Renew our confidence that in Christ we do have answers and need not run away. Amen.